Pastor Chris's podcast. It is, it or it has been the Christian tradition for over a thousand years to follow a cycle of a Christian, a Christian calendar, a Christian seasons throughout the year. And so we begin in the winter with Advent, getting ready for Christmas, and then we celebrate Christmas, and then following that is Epiphany, and then we come into the season of Lent, where we focus on prayer and spiritual growth as we prepare for the celebration of Christ's death and resurrection at Easter Sunday. After, after Easter Sunday, there's a series of Sundays known as the season of Easter. And then last Sunday, we had the Sunday of Pentecost, where we remember the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on the church. The Sunday after that, which is today, is the Sunday called Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday that we celebrate the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God in three persons, as we sing in some of our hymns. So I want to read to you today a passage that challenges us, but also calls on the name of that Trinitarian God. It's from Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so Jesus, having died on the cross and miraculously resurrected, came to his disciples and proclaimed, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And I'm like, well, duh. I mean, if someone can die and rise to new life, there's something especially uh, special about this person. And certainly we can accept that he has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And then he uses that absolute authority to command his followers... And that includes us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, there were a lot of different kinds of baptism going on in the time Jesus gave this command. Jewish People in the Jewish religion practiced a kind of baptism. Throughout the Old Testament, they had a purification rite where they sought spiritual purification through the use of water. And then after coming back from exile in Babylon, back to the promised land, they developed within Judaism a tradition that if a person wanted to convert to become a Jew, they had to go through a spiritual cleansing like a baptism which symbolized that they had become a new person who followed God through the Jewish faith. And then, of course, we know about John the Baptist, a Jew in the New Testament 
who is called John the Baptist because he had this habit of baptizing everyone. He was trying to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, and so he, he baptized them in the Jordan River as a way of symbolizing their cleansing, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There were other religions that celebrate religious ceremonies that are very similar to baptism. Even um, Hindus in, the, uh, in India have a ceremony that's a religious ceremony that looks, if you look at it from the outside, it looks a lot like baptism. And so, therefore, Jesus commanded his followers to baptize in a specific name. He didn't want his baptism to be confused with any of these others. So he said, baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why not just say, baptize in the name of God? Or, I mean, we're Christians, why not just baptize in the name of Christ? Why these three names? It is because the God of the Bible, the God Jesus represents, is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we read about this in Scripture. There are two facts that are very clear from Scripture as you read along, starting in the Old Testament. First of all, there is one God. One of the things that humanity has struggled with all over the world in different cultures and throughout time is this this tendency within the sinful human heart to make a God out of everything. So people would make gods out of the sun and the moon and the stars, or they would worship animals. Uh, they would create statues of idols that they would try to worship. You remember a while back we had a sermon series on Egypt and Pharaoh, and, and we learned that they had thousands of gods in e ancient Egypt. And God was always calling people back, saying, no, there is only one God that created you. One God that is worthy of your worship. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that great call is put forth in Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And throughout Scripture, we hear this call. But another thing that the Bible reveals about God is very interesting. The one God is represented in three persons. And we even see this in the Old Testament. Even as God is calling people back to worship one God, we see this plural character, this plural element of God's character. In the very first verse of the Bible, we see it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we hear that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if we don't realize it, the Hebrew word for God there is actually plural. So if you were to translate that and read it literally, what you read in Genesis 1, 1 is it says, in the beginning, God's created the heaven and the earth. And in the same chapter, Genesis 1, in the 26th verse, you don't even have to know any Hebrew to read it. Check your translation and you will see. It says, then God said, let 
us make human beings in our image to be like us. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say, let me make human beings in my image to be like me. It says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. That's plural. And then in the 18th chapter of Genesis, it says, The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day, Abraham was sitting in the entrance of, to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When God revealed himself to Abraham and he looked up and he saw three men. Isn't that interesting? Furthermore, we find that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 10, it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And then in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, a scripture that we're very familiar with, especially here at Christmas time. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we see in this that the son, who is also called Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor, and then in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, it says, But they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so here we've seen all three persons of the Trinity. All three persons of the Trinity were, were present when Jesus was baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, it says, Jesus himself was baptized as he was praying. The heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son. You will bring me, you bring me great joy. And so in that baptism, we see God, the father speaking from heaven, God, the son receiving baptism and God, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Throughout the New Testament, we find Jesus' followers invoking the three persons of the Trinity. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, Paul blesses the church saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One God in three persons. And Christians have followed this for 2,000 years because it is founded upon Scripture and has become the orthodox teaching of the Christian church going all the way back to Jesus and the 12 apostles and even beyond back into the Old Testament. And whenever groups of people have strayed away from this and said, we believe in Jesus, but we don't accept God or the Holy Spirit, or that we believe in God, but we don't believe in Jesus, it has always been ruled out of bounds. If you are a Christian, you believe in one God who is represented in three persons. 
God created and people rebel. The Bible teaches that God created people to know him and to worship him. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20 it says, through, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his internal power, and his divine nature. So just by looking in, in the world around us, we can see truths about God. If we were free from the tendency in the human heart to try to corrupt things and to change things to make it the way we want it to be, we would be able to see just by looking at nature what God is like and to understand. And that's what scripture says. But the fact is we are not perfect. We're not pure. And sometimes our motives are twisted and people are rebellious and we want to do what we want to do. We don't want anyone, not even God, telling us what we can and cannot do. And so in Romans 1.23, it says, instead of worshiping the, the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And that's why we see all throughout the world in different places, people who have drifted from God into worshiping things that God made. And today, we can add in numerous other false gods that people worship. Things like power and money and politicians. Things that we think are somehow going to save us or fulfill us in ways that only God can. But we grasp at these extra things. And people stray further and further from God. And the more we stray, the more sinful we become. And people can learn to justify anything they want to do. There seems that there is nothing off limit. People can convince themselves that anything is right in their own eyes, no matter how sinful or shameful or downright ludicrous it is. And someone who's clear-headed could look at it from the outside and see their behavior and say, what were they thinking? Have you looked at some of the crazy things people have done in history and thought, what were they thinking? But when we're in the midst of it, there's a blindness and we can't see. Romans chapter 1 verse 26b through 28 says, Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And men, instead of having normal sexual relations with, uh, with, with women, burned with lust for each other. The farther and farther away we stray from God, the more crazy our behavior becomes. And what do we see happening in the world around us today? And no matter how patient or kind, or open-minded we are, we can't help but see some of the things that happen and we just scratch our head and think, really? Of course, more and more and more, the world says it's normal. It's nothing wrong with it. That's just the way people are. You have to get with the program. You have to put behind you these ideas that are outdated and accept 
that this is right. And it's not something that's happening far away in different places. It's something that even happens right in our own communities. Just a couple of weeks ago, I'm at the North Georgia Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church in the southern Bible Belt of our country. And the North Georgia Annual Conference, you can begin to see the way our denomination is drifting off course, going down a path that turns away from what God teaches us in Scripture and even in nature. One of the things that we do, the North Georgia Annual Conference, by the way, is is a, a body of people that are elected by churches throughout our community. So I was there as your representative, as a delegate. And there are delegates from all of the churches in the Northern Georgia Conference. And as I'm there, one of the things that they do as we're doing um, voting on legislation and proposals and um, resolutions, you'll be some debate that goes on. They have microphones around this conference center, which has got several thousand people in it, so they'll have to have a microphone. And people will come up to the microphone and the, the, you know, what they ask for you to do typically is say, hi, I'm Chris Mullis, I'm a clergy serving at Pleasant Grove Methodist Church, and, and then you say what you need to say. That's the way of identifying yourself. Or you might say, I'm Donna Phillips, and I'm here from Pleasant Grove, and I'm a layperson, so they know who you are. Well, this year, um, at least half of the delegates stood up, added something to that. I said, hi, I'm John Doe. I am a clergy, or I'm a layperson. I'm a white person, or I'm an Asian person, and I identify as a male, or I identify as a female, and my preferred pronoun is he, him, or she, her, or I don't identify as either, and this is, this is what we're doing now as a conference, and it's a sign of the direction our conference of the United Methodist Church is going. And we're one of the more conservative conferences in the United States. And many churches within our denomination are, are tired and saying, this is not what we believe. This is not the direction we want our local congregation to go in. 70 churches from our conference withdrew from the United Methodist Church this year. There may be many more that withdraw by next year because they do not want to be a part of that. But this is what we are experiencing in our world, right? It is in the wider culture on the outside of the church but it is also seeping into the church. And you might think that God would abandon us when we slip so far into sin and foolishness that we can't even figure out something as simple as what it means to be a male or female. But God doesn't abandon us. 
Instead, John 3.16 reminds us again and again and again, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus comes to rescue us from the mess we make of our lives and our world and even our churches. Jesus loves everyone. And Jesus came to rescue everyone. But how can Jesus rescue us if we don't even think we need to be rescued? And I think Jesus' followers have to be honest. And we have to tell the truth. When our society calls evil good, Christians have always had the courage and the inspiration and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit to say, no, evil is not good. Sin is not good. Delusion is not good. Mental illness is not good. Sexual confusion is not good. And no matter how much you try to clothe sin in something that you call love or self-actualization or just being who God made you, it doesn't change the facts. Now, Jesus was gentle and he was compassionate. He ate with sinners and social outcasts and even prostitutes. He was never one to shy away from rubbing elbows with people that the world claimed were unclean or unworthy or, or, uh, or, or shameful or outcast. Jesus was never one to shy away from them. He never ever made people feel that they weren't deeply and completely and sacrificially loved. But Jesus also always invited sinners to be rescued from their lives of sin. He didn't say, oh, you're fine. You're just being who you are. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent of your sin and turn and believe the good news. And Jesus says to his followers, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and this includes us. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And so we can't abandon the people of our world. Even if society right now says that they're doing, what they're doing is just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. The Christian church has to have courage to be willing to step aside from what culture says and to hold to the truth of God. Not because we're self-righteous, but because we love people. Unfortunately, it appears the United Methodist denomination is heading down a road where it will no longer want to call sin a sin. 
Instead, the United Methodist Church wants to follow the lead of our secular culture and say that people can define human sexuality to be whatever they want it to be. If you are born as a biological male, but you don't feel like a male, then you can simply identify as a woman. Or if you're a woman, you can identify as a man. And where does this end? Think. Follow the logic. Why do you have to identify as a human being? Can identify as a cat. Am I being silly? You think, that's ridiculous. People would never do that. I read a story today about a 52-year-old man who left his wife and seven kids and now identifies as a six-year-old girl. And you say, what? Just this February, a Seattle woman went on television to explain why she spiritually identifies as being a wolf. And we laugh or we shake our heads and we think, okay, but that's on the fringes. That's not mainstream. That's not real. Those are people who are seeking attention or, or they're, you know, have got a mental problem. 20 years ago, no one in mainstream American society seriously believed that a biological man could identify as a woman and compete against women in a woman's sport. And yet, here we are. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 21, be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us always, leading us, guiding us, encouraging us, empowering us to be his faithful witnesses. The disciples and the early followers of Jesus lived as a tiny major minority in a world that was full of sin and darkness. And people thought these Christians were crazy because they refused to accept the sin and depravity of the culture around them. Christians stood firm on the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures. They refused to call evil good and good evil. Even when it cost them their standing with their neighbors, even when it broke relationships they had with people in their family, even when it cost them their ability to make a sale in their business or their jobs, even when it cost them their influence in politics and society's government, even when it cost them their lives, these Christians remained faithful. And they loved people enough to tell them the truth about Christ. The same Holy Spirit that guided them guides us today. And we are called to be faithful witnesses to the world in the 21st century. It's, a, it's intimidating. It's a heavy responsibility. But it is also an honor and a privilege. And so... 
Let us pray for courage and strength to be faithful witnesses for Christ as a church and as individuals, no matter what the cost. Because we are called to lay down our lives and to take up a cross and to follow our Lord.